Welcome to the latest podcast in our entrepreneurship series. I'm Jeff Skinner, director of the school's Institute of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And now together with a small group of faculty colleagues, we're constantly developing new ways of encouraging students to think about entrepreneurship as a potential career and, and give their nascent adventures the best chances of success in the market. Now, the, the purpose of this series is to share some of our thinking and experience with everybody else. And today I'm joined by one of the architects of entrepreneurship and a close colleague here at uh, London Business School, John Mullins. John, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Fantastic to be with you. Well, you know, we've worked together and you've been here at the school for almost two decades. And um, what do you do here now? Well, I continue to study what makes entrepreneurs uh, successful and what makes their firms grow fast. My passion is, is helping people who want to make the world better in some small way and help that whatever it is scale and put lots of people to work and deliver lots of value to whomever they're targeting. That's where I get my fun. And like many of us uh, involved in entrepreneurship at the school, you've started a few businesses of your own before landing at LBS all those years ago, uh, some of which have become great teaching cases, of course. Well, they have, you know, but it's funny how things have evolved over my, you know, almost a couple of generations now. When I was a business school student at Stanford years ago, I never heard the word entrepreneurship. Hard to believe, really. And in those days, of course, what most of my classmates wanted to do was go find a job with a really cool big company, right? And, and they thought that 30 years and a gold watch would be just fine. Well, those years have gone, and uh, people have sort of reimagined what career opportunities look like today. And as you know, the students we get here at London Business School arrive in many cases with the express purpose of finding another student, uh, a tech guy maybe from UCL, and finding an entrepreneurial venture to pursue. I mean, it, it sounds really hard to believe that at Stanford, I mean, I guess we are talking 1960s? Late 60s. Late 60s. That, that you know, even in Stanford, that's what you've been quoted as saying, that the word entrepreneurship just didn't come up. It wasn't there. There was a single course taught by a wonderful guy named Bob Davis, and it was called Small Business Management. And a handful of students took it. Everybody um, else was off doing their eye banking and consulting and strategy stuff. And a handful did that. I guess it was the Remarkable. same here when I did my MBA in the early 90s. I mean, entrepreneurship sounded exciting. It actually got an awful lot of students into the class. But when it came to it, very few ended up going for it. Um, whereas now about 10% of the cohort, each cohort, go for starting their own business. I mean, what, what do you think really has changed? You, you've touched on the allure of the corporate life and the, and the job for life and the gold watch going, but is it all negative that they don't want that anymore or has, has no. something else been changing? Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot that's led to it. I, I think part of it is the downsizing that we had in the 90s where big companies all of a sudden said, well, we don't think we want to be in that business anymore. We're going to downsize it, or we need to be more efficient. We're going to right-size it. And so people who are doing a really good job all of a sudden lost their work. And we've seen it this week with Deutsche Bank, of course, so doing it's a the sort same of, thing. It's a sort of death of loyalty. Yeah, yeah I, I, th I think it's gone. So I think that's a part of it, but I don't think that's the biggest part of it. I think the biggest part of it is that in the U.S., where I come from, people have seen what entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs and Michael Dell have created. In the UK, they've seen what Richard Branson has done. And they say, well, gee, that looks like a little more fun than working in a big organization. And 
you know, if I could do something like those guys have done, you know, maybe that would be a, a more interesting career and one I'd have more of my own real heart and soul in. I think that's what it's and really has it, about. Has it been sort of more societal and fa- family acceptance? I mean, we've got things like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank on the TV now where these are the sort of heroes and, and where a once you might have said, well, I'm going to start my own business. That was, you can't get a job elsewhere. Now I'm going to start my own business has got some sort of social capital and and, heroism attached. Yeah, I think that's true. When I came to the UK 19 years ago, I think it's fair to say that entrepreneurship was pretty much a dirty word. (laughs) That no parent would say to their kid, gee, why don't you think about being an entrepreneur? Parents wanted their kids to do other things. But today, having sat around the telly and watched Dragon's Den and seen some pretty loony characters on that show, but also some pretty admirable ones, I think it's now okay to be an entrepreneur. And in many families, I think it's more than okay. It's seen as, gee, that's pretty cool. I wish I could have done that. What I can say about London now, which, which wasn't true of 10 years ago, is it's a fantastic ecosystem here for entrepreneurs. But the same isn't necessarily true in emerging markets. And I often have uh, my equivalents in business schools in in other countries saying, you are so lucky in London. I just wonder, what's your view on the ability to to grow a great entrepreneurial business in in emerging markets? I mean, it is more difficult to scale these opportunities elsewhere because you just don't have the ecosystem. Yeah, but the opportunities are so big. I mean, it's a really interesting question we get asked about, you know, can I be an entrepreneur in Argentina or Cuba or Bangladesh? And if I come up with something that's really meaningful, can I get it to scale? And I I think the answer is yes today. All the benefits we have in the West about using technology and being able to pretty much buy it off the shelf, all that's available there too, right? The The internet gives us global reach. There's a guy I know who's built a wonderful business in Latin America uh, serving cable television operators, and his customers include all the best cable operators, not only in Latin America, but in North America. And that's being done from Argentina. He's the software leader in his little niche. You know, who says you can't scale a business in another place like that? I think you can. Yeah. So, I mean, as long as the property rights are respected and there's transparency in doing business, it it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And, you know, these days, life, especially in tech, has more to do with speed of execution and the effectiveness with which you execute and less to do with patents and things like that. You know, you really can't protect software. But what you can do is run fast and serve customers really, really well. And if you do that, you prosper. There's another thought that springs up to me. It's, it's the data about one in 10 adult Americans is actively involved in starting a business today. In Palo Alto, it's probably one in four, right? And so in some parts of the world, if you're not doing it, well, that guy's doing it, and that guy's doing it, and she's doing it, so why am I not doing it? You know, there's this, uh, it's like it's in the water in some places, and you're in a culture where it's just sort of almost expected that, well, aren't you working on a new venture? That it seems like almost everybody is. Now, it's not almost everybody. You know, one in four, maybe in Palo Alto, one in, or in much of California, one in 10 in the U.S., it's about one in 15 in the U.K. So there are plenty of people to go around to take all those corporate jobs that that we still need to fill. But I, I think today, if you want to surround yourself with other like-minded people, 
that are thinking about entrepreneurial ventures and maybe you go take a, a shared office space at WeWork or whatever, you can just immerse yourself right into that culture and, and that support system is extraordinarily helpful. And today you can do that anywhere. I mean, it's, it's a cauldron effect, isn't it? Yeah. And I often thought that even here, 15, 20 years ago, I regarded as all those who wanted to get those regular gold watch jobs. They were almost like control rods in a nuclear reactor. You have enough of them and they just dampen all the spirit that's radiating from these nascent entrepreneurs all around. And now there's there's less of them. And so there's a, a much greater multiplier effect. I mean, the, there is a question, of course, is there are so many more people pursuing entrepreneurial ventures now. Um, is it just that more entrepreneurs are being born? Well, you know, people ask, are entrepreneurs born or made? You know, that's a big question we all often get asked. And I don't think we can just pick somebody that walks, you know, past the entrance to London Business School, pick them up, dunk them in the sauce and set them back out on the street and say, okay, now you're good to go. I don't think it works that way. But I think what we can do is we can help give entrepreneurs tools to help them address the challenges that we know they're going to face, right? We've studied this stuff long enough now that that it's pretty clear you're going to have problems managing cash. It's pretty clear you're going to have difficulty attracting, retaining talent. It's pretty clear that you're going to have difficulty figuring out, well, exactly which is the right target market for this thing that I want to put to work. We can help students think through those things as they become entrepreneurs, and, and maybe that moves the needle just a bit and uh, helps their still difficult odds. I mean, we are often asked this question about, you know, can you teach entrepreneurship? And I guess my response has always been, you probably can't teach it, but you can help people learn it. You know, entrepreneurship, like like any other uh, skill or craft, is part education, part apprenticeship. Yeah, and, and fundamentally you learn it by doing. And one of the things we try and do here is get people out of the building and get them talking to customers and prospective clients and, and uh, suppliers and learn exactly what it would take to start the venture they have in mind. Then they come back figuring out, oh, that's not quite right. I've got to do a little pivot here, but, you know, if I move it over this way, maybe I can make it work. I think those are some of the fundamental skills. And does it help to, to be open-minded and open to experience and, and have that kind of attitude to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, of course it does. So there are some personalities that are perhaps better suited, but those same personalities are also the ones that are better suited to lead fast-growing, big kind of companies. So as you compare the difference between successful executives and big companies and successful entrepreneurs, it's pretty hard to find differences, really. Those skills are, are pretty common. But what I think we can do, and I think you and I share this view, is we can better equip people to deal with the inevitable challenges that they will face. And I think it seems to me that the methodology for sort of creating and building businesses has also become more mature over, over the last decade or so. I mean, in the olden days, it was all about preparing and pitching business plans, which, which actually were rather daunting to write and often turned out to be a elaborate works of fiction. <laughs> um, that approach seemed so correct and yet so unnatural and flawed at the same time. What's your advice nowadays? I guess my sense is that the days when, when you come up with a great idea, write a terrific business plan, go raise some capital, and voila, you, you get rich. I, I think those days are over, and actually they probably never were here, really. But, you know, we in academia who are trying to help entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs, 
We know what to do with a pile of paper that comes to our desk with a staple in the corner. We can grade that. You know, we know how to do that. So one of the things that happened, I think we've been part of the problem, is we said, well, we got to teach entrepreneurship because there's demand for it. Well, what are we going to ask them to do? Well, let's ask them to write a business plan because it arrives as a pile of paper with a staple in the corner, and we know how to deal with that. But the reality is that's not how most ventures get started. Most of them get started by finding some customer that's got a compelling problem, and the entrepreneur gets the customer to say, well, if I can solve that problem for you, will you pay me? That's what Michael Dell did when he was a 19-year-old college freshman at the University of Texas. People needed better computers, their personal computers in the dawn of that age, that were tailored to the needs they had. And, and Michael said, well, I can get you one. I'll build it for you exactly how you want, but you have to pay me in advance. So people were happy to do that. Well, Michael Dell never raised venture capital. He didn't need it because his customers were funding the business. That's really what I advise people to do today. I think it's our colleague John Bates who says the only thing connecting the plan with the assumptions is the staples or something like that with the <laughs> business plan. Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, this sort of methodology is very much summed up in what I'd say were the two major works on entrepreneurship in recent years, which is the whole lean startup methodology and also your own new business road test, which remains the sort of fundament of the, you know, the, the, our, our approach here, which is much more around testing viability and, and learning rather than this sort of tombstone, which is the, the, the business plan from day one. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there are so many ideas about what we could do as an entrepreneur, but our talent is really important to the world. You know, we might as well be pursuing something that's really useful and that's going to make customers happy or make the world a better place, or maybe both, than pursuing some uh, goofball idea that's a no-hoper. So, so I think it makes a lot of sense to go gather some evidence early on in the process of thinking about a new venture, road test that idea, and uh, if, if you find out that it's not a good idea, thank goodness you, you discovered that quickly and you, you don't waste months or years of your time and maybe a bunch of your own or other people's money, you get started on something that makes more sense. I always chuckled at the outcomes of the entrepreneurship summer school when at the end of the summer school, everybody would have to pitch, you know, at the end as to whether their idea was feasible or not. And of course, on day one, they all thought their ideas were feasible. Well, by the time they got to the end of the course, about half of them had said, thank goodness I've gone through this exercise because I sure don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes me chuckle about this same entrepreneurship summer school here is that the idea they come back with at the end of the summer is often so radically different, you know, mm. and the whole idea of you go get to plan B through plan A. And it's a, it's a purpose of learning and, and evolving the idea, literally conversation by conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it seems to me that the approach if here, if anything, has become more scientific. And the emphasis on collecting and, and creating that evidence and hypothesis testing. Well, one uh, guy I know calls it evidence-based entrepreneurship. And mm. I think there's some real truth to that. The, the notion is that don't just hope that the customer is going to buy. Go get some evidence that's going to buy. There's a great story that, that a guy at Stanford tells about uh, some students that, that had an idea to sell uh, day-old sushi in California. Everybody likes sushi in California, but maybe day-old at half price would be a heck of a deal. So he encouraged them to figure out how to test the idea. So they convinced the little place on campus that sold sushi that they would just take half the uh, packages in the, in the case and slap a 
day-old sushi label on it at 50% off. And, and they very quickly tested whether people <laughs> were interested. Guess what? Nobody bought the day-old stuff. It wasn't even day-old. It just had a day-old label on it. Yeah. They quickly learned. Yeah. But that's, that's gathering evidence. And right? nice and that, cheap. That's, that's what we have to do. And the faster you can kill a bad idea, the better off you are. And what about failure? I mean, one of my greatest fears genuinely of over encouraging students to sort of eschew and, and not go to an employment but spend that year after LBS founding their own business and then only to find that the business doesn't work out and what happens and, and are they branded a failure do they lose out against newly minted MBAs you know can they find a job are they unemployable and, and so there's always this sense of you know being labeled that failure is that a danger you recognize? Well, I think there are two ways I'd answer that question. One is, in California, what they say is failure is an education on somebody else's dime. So, you know, you're going to learn things if you fail. And as long as you learn things, that's going to make you better in the future. I'm also reminded of one of our summer school graduates from must have been six or seven years ago now, who went off and did her entrepreneurial thing for three or four years and couldn't quite get it to work despite a couple pivots and finally said, you know what? I'm going to go work for Google. And uh, she did, and she's had a fantastic career. And Google thought the foundation that she had of trying to make a venture work would be fantastic for the role they put her in. So I don't think there's very much risk, actually. Yeah. The, the experience shines through. The best companies value that, and the worst ones, hey, you don't want to work for them anyway. That's right. <laughs> Are there good times and bad times to start a business? Uh, you know, we say in a recession sometimes, you know, keep your head down keep the job you got if you've got it. Other people say it's the time when everybody else is doing that, so that's when it pays to be opportunistic. I think you can make a case that recessions are a great time to start a business. You also can make a case that, that boom times, like we've been in recently, are a great time to start a business. I, I don't think it matters. Two guys named uh, Hewlett and Packard started a little business in the depth of a recession in a garage in Palo Alto, They've done okay, right? So that was a pretty good time to start that business. And there are a couple of good things about starting a business when times are tough. Number one, you can get resources more cheaply, whether it's rent or people or whatever, and that can really help you get going. And your competition, the big companies that you maybe want to take some share away from, are pulling their horns in and they're cutting budgets and they're not doing anything innovative. So it's a great time to start. On the other hand, if the economy is red hot and there's money around and you need some of that and uh, people have money in their pockets to spend, maybe it's easier to get customer traction then. So I, I tell people, don't worry about what the state of the economic cycle is. If you've got a, an idea that's going to solve a compelling problem that some customer has, then get started. So what's next? What are you working on? What's the future? Well, I'm spending a lot of my time with digital stuff these days. You know, we are, you and I are very fortunate to be here at London Business School with the quality of people that walk through our doors and we get to deal with them every day. But, you know, for everybody who walks through the doors here, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of aspiring entrepreneurs who will never set foot on the London Business School campus. So a bunch of my effort today is now targeted at building online stuff that we can reach people with that are not going to be able to set foot on campus. So this afternoon, for example, I have a marketing webinar I'll deliver for a course called Startup Success. And last cohort, we had people from 15 countries doing all kinds of different businesses. 
we did a contest at the end, and we gave somebody a prize for having the best business model, and we gave another guy the prize for having the, the best work for a business model judged infeasible by him. He learned a great deal about it. He planned to write an app to do something or other, don't remember, and he figured out along the way, actually, I'm not the right guy to do that. I don't have those skills, and it's going to be really hard to get anybody's attention to buy it. I think I need a better idea. What a fantastic outcome for a young person. So it's democratizing and demystifying entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think one of the key roles we can play here is to spread the skills that you and I have learned in, in dealing with so many ventures over the last 20 years and let those skills be shared by other people around the world. Brilliant. Well, lovely talking to you. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you for listening. Find out more about how we engage and inspire entrepreneurs at London Business School by visiting london.edu forward slash innovation and follow us on Twitter at LBS Entrepreneur. Mm-hmm.